0: We ask you to bless this time as we look at your word we ask you to guide and lead show us what you want us to see from this activity and let your spirit reign over us in Jesus name Amen, amen. amen. John chapter 8 starting at verse 19 uh, Jesus is um, in the temple he was they brought the woman caught in adultery and he told them to first uh, one without sin cast the first stone uh, then he said he's the light of the world and then they started saying, you know, he gives record, and they accused him of bearing false witness because he was giving a record to himself. So verse 19, uh, or verse 18, I'm going to read it in verse 18 to start. I am one, I am one that bears witness, and, my, and the Father that heard me and sent me beareth witness of me. Then they said unto him, Where is your Father? Jesus answered, You neither know me nor, nor my Father. If you had known me, you should have known my Father also. These words spoke Jesus in the treasury as he taught in the temple, and no man laid hands on him, for his hour was not yet come. Then said Jesus again unto them, I go my way, and you shall seek me, and shall die in your sins. Where I go, you cannot come. Then said the Jews, Will he kill himself, because he says, Where I go, you cannot come? And he said unto them, Ye are from beneath, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I said therefore unto you that you shall die in your sins for you, for if you believe not that I am he, you shall die in your sins. We're going to stop there for just a moment. Alright, so Jesus is telling them, you know, I am from above, the Father bears witness to me, and then their question was, where is your Father? Alright? Uh, okay, if your Father is speaking about you, where is he that he can bear witness? Alright, it's kind of sarcastic. They know what he's talking about, but They're being sarcastic, you know, okay, you're bearing witness, but where is your father that bears witness of you as well? And then Jesus answered, you neither know me nor my father. If you had known me, you should have known my father also. Now, Jesus is really getting down to this. He goes, you claim to be spiritual. You claim to know God, yet you don't know him. If you had known him, you would know me. If you know me, you know him. All right. And this is very interesting because Jesus is constantly going after them about the idea that they know a lot of facts about the Bible. They know the facts, they know the stories, they know they know information but they don't know the Father. And this happens a lot of times with churches and, and when people spend a lot of time in a church and They get to know a lot about the Bible. They could win the Bible trivia games. They could, you know, find all the verses and tell you all the verses, but they oftentimes don't know God. And this is a very serious problem. Do we really know God? Is he really our Lord and savior? Or do we just know about him? And this is a very interesting question that we have for people. And we've all met people who just seem to know about God. You know, there's just no changes in their life. They're miserable most of the time because they don't see the power of God, but they read about the power of God. They don't feel his presence in their life, and they're just totally miserable. And other people are almost always pleased. God's on their side, you know, they're they're happy. God's keeping us, they're focused on him. He is their Lord and savior. He's not just somebody they know about. And this is Jesus in the temple saying, you all don't know me because you don't know the father. And at this point, they're beginning to really understand, but they're being obstinate, trying to not understand. So they should, he's saying you should have recognized him as the Messiah. Yes. So well, right. if you had really known the Father, if you'd really known the scriptures, you would know who I am. All right. Because every point in the Old Testament, which we, when we study the Old Testament, I point out most of the time, this is where we see Jesus, this is where we see Jesus. This is the picture of Jesus. So they should have been able to say, wow, this, look at, look at all of our places. And here's, here he is standing in front of us. When he entered into Jerusalem in the triumphant entry, At one point he said, you should have known the time. Why? Because uh, Daniel gave the prophecy of the 70 weeks and he said 69 weeks and then the Messiah will come. Well, it was 69 weeks of years and Jesus entered into Jerusalem. So they should have been looking for the Messiah. All right. Now, granted, it's easier to look backwards and say, you know, yes, here's all the, the pictures. But at the same time, they should have been able to say it's been 483 years since, since we, came, we were sent back to Jerusalem and rebuilt it. The Messiah is supposed to be coming soon and opening their eyes and looking. It's one thing to, be, to not see when you're not expecting. All right. But it's another thing to not see if you're expecting. All right. And this is very true. I've been I can walk past people in a store because I'm not expecting to see them and I'm just I'm busy doing my thing and walk right past people that I know really well, even. And they're going, Well, you didn't even say hi to me. I go, you know, I'm sorry, when I go to a store I'm on (laughs) I'm on a mission. Get in and out of a store as fast as possible. Jesus saying, You should have known. You should have been looking for a Messiah, and if you were looking for the Messiah, you really would have known who, who I am because I am fitting the, the bill. They would have done a little bit of research into his life and found out that he was born in Bethlehem, not from Nazareth, like they think, think he is, that he was sent into Egypt and came out of Egypt. And they're going, oh, here's, here's some scriptures. All right. Um, but they never knew because they weren't looking. Matter of fact, they didn't want to look. You know, the Scribes and Pharisees didn't want a Messiah. They had a nice, cushy arrangement with Rome. They weren't totally happy with it, but Rome let them do their thing, and they protected them, and they didn't have to worry about keeping an army and all this other stuff. Rome, Rome did all the bad stuff for them, and they just got to be spirit, spiritual leaders. So they weren't looking for a Messiah. And Jesus is saying, you don't even know. You don't even know. You haven't read the scriptures. You're, or you don't understand the scriptures. I wouldn't say read, because they read the scriptures. They memorized the scriptures. Uh, and it says these words jesus spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple and no man laid hands on him for his hour was not yet come and i have made a point to this several times jesus is in the temple teaching the scribes pharisees and priests do not like him they want him arrested they have an entire military guard temple guard available to them to arrest him and they still never arrest him because they're afraid of the people who are on Jesus' side. And they didn't want a riot, especially not in the temple. And they don't want to riot anywhere in Jerusalem, but they don't want a riot in the temple, especially because that would really look bad for them as spiritual leaders. And so this point John makes out quite frequently in the in his book, his time was not yet come, so they did not arrest him. So two points on there is number one God's in control so even if they had wanted to arrest him they're not going to be able to but they're political animals they know they can't afford to irritate the people even though they're supposed to be spiritual leaders they are political we can't get the people upset at us or we'll lose our position of authority All right. Now, this is not new. This whole political idea is not new. We were studying Jeremiah and Jeremiah was going through the same thing where all the leaders were praising the king and lying about what God said and contradicting everything Jeremiah said. And the king was buying into their statements and poor Jeremiah standing there saying, I'm telling you God's words. Would you quit throwing me in prison in the the cisterns and beating me and putting me in the stocks? I'm just telling you what God says in spite of what all these liars are telling you. Political answers are so prevalent and have been forever. People always want to stay out of trouble if at all possible. And I understand that idea. I would like to stay out of trouble as much as possible, but I still have to stand for God and speak God's word. And that gets me in trouble sometimes with people. And so this is what happens in all of this. Verse 21 says, And then Jesus said unto them, I go my way, and you shall seek me, and shall die in your sins. Where I go, you cannot come. So Jesus is saying, I'm going. I'm going to leave you. And where I'm going, you don't know where I'm going. You can't find me. But he makes something very interesting. And you shall die in your sins. You shall seek me and die in your sins. This is, they're not accepting him. All right. They're looking for him. Even the ones that are looking for Jesus at this point are not looking for a savior directly. They're looking for a military mighty person who's going to rescue the Israeli nation and make it a great nation. They're not looking for one who's going to save them, cover their sins and allow them to enter the, father, enter the, into the father's place. He goes, I'm going to go my way and you shall seek me. You're going to look for me. What happens... After the end of this week that we're in, the rest of the book of John, (laughs) he's going to die on the cross, be buried for three days, resurrect. Forty days later, he's going to ascend into heaven. Nobody will be able to find him physically. They have to believe in who he says he is and what he says he's done and what the testimony of the disciples is going to be. The disciples will tell them that Jesus died, paid for the debts of their sins, and if they just turn their life over to Him and make Him Lord and Savior of their life, then they will shall be saved. Most of them are not going to do that. And most people, even to this day, don't accept Jesus. And you know, Jesus told the parable of the sower and the seed. And in that one, 75% of the people did not accept Christ, did not get saved. Some fell on the hard rocks and didn't even come close. Some came into the, to the, the rocky soil and sprouted up and withered away. Some went into the weeds and got choked out. All of those were non-Christians. Some heard gladly and looked, maybe even looked like a Christian for a couple of days while they were excited about what they heard, but everything choked it out and they never made Jesus Lord. And this is most important. You know, there are so many people that are looking to accept Jesus as Savior. I got my fire insurance, now I can go out and do whatever I want, I'm not going to go to hell so I can go live like the devil and still go to heaven. No, it doesn't work that way, all right? You're, that person never got saved if that's what, they're, what they can think of. They're part of that uh, seed in the thorns. I'm gonna follow the ways of the world, but I'm gonna say I'm a Christian and not ever live it out. And this is very important And Jesus says, you're gonna try to find me, and I, you're not gonna find me. You can't find me, and if you don't find me, you're gonna die in your sins. And this is a very important statement that is out there. Everybody has the opportunity to accept Christ. God has given a universal call. Whosoever will shall be saved. But not everybody will accept that call. Many will reject Jesus and not find him. Some of them aren't even looking. Uh, and then the people, verse 22, then the Jew said, will he kill himself? Because he says, where I go, you cannot come. They're, they're thinking he's gonna go commit suicide, all right? What's he gonna do, go kill himself? And suicide back then was just as bad as suicide, well, as bad as suicide was 10, year, 10, 20 years ago or more. People are now committing suicide and thinking it's a good thing to do because it takes care of their family. Uh, but usually in any rational society, suicide's a bad, is looked down on, all right? Uh, and they're going, and it was in their day. Is he talking about committing suicide? He's going to kill himself? That way we can't find him? You know, because he's been talking. Now, remember, all through these last couple chapters, he's been going, you know, they seek to kill me. They seek to kill me. They seek to kill me. And they're looking around. There's no guard anywhere nearby. and Nobody's trying to arrest him. They're going, what is he talking about? Who's trying to kill him? So all they're seeing is on Jesus' mind right now is death. And in reality, that is what's on his mind at this point. He knows that by the end of this week, from the time he goes into Jerusalem as the triumphant entry, to the end of that week marks when he's going to go on the cross. It's forefront in his mind. He knows that his days are numbered. He knows that when Passover comes, he's going to be killed because he is the Passover lamb. He knows the day that he's going to die. Pretty much the time that he's going to die because the Passover lamb is killed in the morning. All right. So, think about this. If you were alive and and knowing that you were going to die in a certain number of days and in the in the in the AM time of that uh, that day, how would you feel? You know, people have said, you know, I kind of wish I knew what, when when I'm going to die. I would never want to know when I'm going to die. That would be terrible. To know that I'm going to die on such and such day at such and such hour, especially as that day got closer and closer, it would be very hard to to handle. And I would have to put all my affairs into order and be ready. But Jesus knew this was happening. He came to this world to die as the Passover lamb. And he knew this. All through the New Testament, he tells the disciples, I'm going to go die and then I'm going to come back and, and then I will rule. They never really understood because it, they had blinders on, they did not understand what he was talking about. The disciples had the same problem the rest of the Jews had. Here's Messiah, he's going to get rid of Rome and we're going to be, we're going to be the nation where everybody worships and, and, and we're going to rule the world from here and the Messiah is going to rule it. They fully understood that that was what they understood the Messiah to be. Now we know that that's the millennial kingdom and on, but they did not understand that. They did not understand the idea that the Messiah was going to come to die. Even though Isaiah 53 taught about it, the various Psalms mentioned it. All over the scriptures, it talks about his death and his burial and his resurrection. But that was not forefront in their mind because they only saw one issue. And that is, we got to get rid of Rome. Rome is, Rome is persecuting us. We need to get rid of Rome. We need the Messiah to come. And some of the people did know that it's pretty close to when Messiah was coming, so they were, but they were looking for the wrong thing. And this is one of the things we have to be careful of that we don't get so caught up in something we think God has said or, or told us or something, so that we block out all other things that God can do and just say, well, God, you said you were going to do this, so I'm going to just sit back and wait for you to do it. Oh, but well, no, that wasn't, that wasn't him, so I can't do that one. That looked good, but I'm, you know, that's not what he told me. Oh, that looked pretty good, but I'm not going to do that because I'm going to do this over here that he told me I'm going to do. How many times have we bypassed great callings and ministries from God because we think we know what he's asked us to do? And this is something we have to be very careful of. And that doesn't mean every opportunity that comes our way is good either. Because sometimes Satan tries to say, okay, I can't keep you from serving God, so therefore, instead of doing the best, I'm going to give you good. We're going to present good to you. And the hardest decision we have when we're walking with God is distinguishing between good and good. All right? Which one do we take? And there is no, doesn't look to us like one's better than the other, and that's when we really have to get down and pray and say, God, which way should I be going? Because we get presented with, Satan goes, well, I know this is your best. so I'm going to give you a couple good options here. Hopefully I'll get you wrapped up in the good and you'll get frustrated because you're dealing with good and not the best. And unfortunately that happens. Or he'll get us caught up in four or five good things instead of the one best thing we were supposed to be doing. And we get burnt out and tired because we're doing so much and it's all good and we get burnt out because we're just so tired because it's not what God wanted us to be doing. This is the way Satan works in our life, and I've been caught up in that when I was younger, doing so much that I did nothing good, but I did lots of stuff. All right, did lots of stuff, and probably, you know ministered to a lot of people, but I wasn't doing one thing the way God wanted me to or two things the way I wanted to. I was doing lots of stuff and we need to be careful about that because it's easy to get wrapped up in that. You know, that's when I really learned the word no. No, I'm not going to do that. But we need your help. I going no, God does not, I don't think God is putting me that direction. I'm going to do things that I think God is wanting me to do. And this is one of the things I've told people, you know, everybody needs to learn the word no. Now the problem when God taught me to say the word no is I originally used it too much and started saying no to everything. (laughs) I went from one extreme (laughs) to the other extreme and you know, we need to be careful that we always have to live a life of balance and not get caught up in the extremes and it is so easy for us to go from one extreme, well God, you know, I'm miserable, terrible, I'm gonna go do everything and the next thing I know, I'm way too busy or I'm going way too busy and I just dump everything and do nothing now maybe God's telling you to do nothing for a period to recover but we need to be careful and say this is what God wants or not wants and there was a time when God said okay you've been doing so much I just want you to do nothing for a while just go to church and I did and I got lazy and then when God started saying do things I'm going I don't think so I like I like just doing what I'm doing and watching everybody else work so again I went from one extreme to another extreme, and we need to be very careful to avoid extremes. Being able to learn to say no, being able to learn to say this is what God wants, and being able to pray about it. Verse 23 says, And he said unto them, You are from beneath, I am from above, you are of this world, I am not of this world. He, so he's telling them, You are worldly. All of your thoughts and considerations are based in this world. Because my thoughts are heavenly, I am from heaven, and I am based in heaven, and you are of the world. We cannot be of this togetherness. And this is something that we find frequently when we're Christians. When we're trying to follow God, and and people come along, and they want to talk about everything but God, sometimes not even good things. I mean, it's about enough if they're just trying to be okay. They want to talk about sports or hobbies or general. But what I find in the world most of the time is you start out talking about those things, and the problem is those of us that are from above, what do we start doing? We start talking about God. What do those of them below start talking about? They start getting into innuendo and and things that are just maybe not quite you know dirty, but it sure pushes the the limits. And this is what I'm finding when I listen to most comedians, which I don't listen to very often. They all, they start out okay. And then all of a sudden they just start getting, you know, at the very least on the edge. And I don't like on the edge because if they're on the edge, they eventually drop below the edge or they get us to think below the edge one, one way or the other. And Jesus is telling them, I'm from above, you're from below. You know, you're not, you not even going to understand it. it goes, away. And because of this, he said in the verse 24, And I say therefore unto you, that you shall die in your sins, for you, if you believe not that I am he, that I am, I'm going to drop off the he because the he's in italic, so it doesn't belong there, that I, if you do not believe that I am, you shall die in your sins. Now when Jesus said this, that you do not believe that I am, unless you believe that I am. What is he saying to the Jews? I'm God. All right. Doesn't sound like that to us, but the, the word, when he said be, that I am, he, and the he does not belong there, that I am. What's the name of God according to, that, that God told Moses? I am that I am. All right, I am the eternal one. I am the one with no beginning, no end. I live in the eternal presence. And Jesus said, you've got to believe that I am. You've got to believe that I'm God. Now, what happens in our world and our day? How many different religions are there out there that do not believe that Jesus is God? All right, that is the big key issue. What does anybody say about Jesus? Well, he was a good man wrong. Good men don't call themselves God. Do not say that they take worship. Well, he was a good prophet. No, nope. Well, prophets are not going to accept worship and, and say that they're God. Well, he's a lunatic. Well, that may be an option you want to take, but nobody, nobody in that day thought he was a lunatic. All right. Uh, but so you have to say, who is he? Who is Jesus? The Jehovah's Witnesses deny that he is God. Mormons say that he is a God. He is a, the brother of Lucifer, and he are brothers. They're, they are sons of God, lesser sons of God. Others just say he's a great prophet. But if you're not going to say he's God, then you're not having the right Jesus. And this is why when we start talking to people, we really need to be able to go into people's uh, words and say, what do you mean? When you say Jesus is God or son of God, you really want to sit down and say, what does that mean to you? What does it mean to be God? Number one, what does it mean to be God, period? Uh, and this is very important because the Romans had hundreds of gods. You know, they, Jesus wanted to be a God? No problem. We have no problem with him being God. He wants to be the son of God? No problem. We've got all kinds of sons of gods all over our mythology, our our, our Godheads, yeah, our gods. You know, they, they had no problem, the Jews had problems with them because they had only one God. But who is God? This is our first question we need to look at when somebody, when we're talking to people. Who or what is God in their mind? Because if you're talking to somebody that's from uh, India, they only have about 300 gods, so you have to figure out which god they're talking about. Most of Asia has multiple gods. Uh, if you're talking to a Muslim, they worship Allah, which, the, which is the moon God, even though they only have one God, he's not the God of the universe, he is the God of the moon. Uh, you know, so you have to be able to go through them and say, what is it that you believe? What is it that you talk about? When we talk about God, we're talking about the creator of the universe that is all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present, and gets his is all-sovereign. So we have this picture of who God is. Then we come down to who Jesus is. He is the Son of God but he is also God. And they're not two separate individuals and they are one and yet we cannot understand that because then you throw the Holy Spirit in and he is God as well and he's not a third part of God, he's not a total separate part of God, he is God. And we can't understand the Trinity and we're not going to talk about that tonight necessarily but the Trinity is something we can't understand. Because of the craziness of it when we think about it we cannot comprehend it we can't under, we can't comprehend a god that exists outside of time that knows everything I and mean, yes we can go okay i kind of understand it but we don't you know, there's no way we can we have no we as human beings have no way to frame something that is outside of time that is always in the present no matter what time he's in and if he's in the past the present or the future he's in the present He's in the present. We don't understand that because he's outside of time. Now, we can kind of conceive of it in our day and age because of physics and all of that in there, but we still can't fully understand what that means. How can somebody know the future as if it has already happened because he's already there and tell us about it in the present and still have it work out? Now, we can't understand that. It just doesn't make any sense to us because of our finiteness. And then he says, if you, let's see, where was I? 25, there we go. <laughs> <laughs> Verse 27 says, And they understood not that he spoke to them of the Father of God. Then said Jesus unto them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then shall you know that I am he, or that I am. And that I do nothing of myself, but as my father hath taught me, I speak these things, and he has sent me, and he that sent me is with me, the Father hath not left me alone, for I do always those things which please him. And he spake these words as he spake these words, many believed on him. Then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him, If you continue in my word, then you are my disciples indeed. And if you shall know the truth, the truth shall make you free. Okay. I think you skipped 25 and 26. Did I? Yeah. Oh, all right. 25. I just wanted to skip it for some reason. Who knows? 25. And then said they, they, then said they unto him, Who are you? And Jesus said... Even the same that said in, unto you from the beginning, I have many things to say and to judge of you. But you, but he that sent me is true, and I speak to the word these things world these things which I have heard of him. And they understood not for he speak, that he that he spoke of the father. Okay. So Jesus, they go. Who are you? You're here in the temple. You're irritating the scribes and Pharisees. You're irritating the priests. Nobody's arresting. You're telling us you're going someplace where where we can't follow. You're telling us that if we knew the the Father, we'd know you. Who exactly are you? This is a good question that they're asking of him. Uh, Well, exactly who are you? Would you just speak plainly to us? Now, Jesus didn't often speak plainly to the crowd. He spoke in parables so they would not know. And then he says, even that which I said unto you from the beginning. I am, the person I'm telling you is who I've been telling you all along. All right? I see, I said therefore unto you that you shall die in your sins for you, for if you believe not that I am, you shall die in your sins. So here again, he's telling them very, this guy is being very plain. If you do not believe, you know, I've, that I am, that I'm God. This is how they would have understood this. You know, he has just claimed to be God. This should get him an immediate arrest in the temple. Because from their point of view, he's committing blasphemy. And he still doesn't get arrested. And it's not the first time he said in the temple that I am. Right? He is pushing the buttons right now. Why? For one thing, he knows he has to go to the cross. He has to get them so riled up that they're going to do whatever it takes to get him arrested. Because he knows that he needs to be arrested. He knows that his time is coming. He knows that on Passover he is going to be executed for the sins of the world. He knows that it's going to be on the Roman cross. He already knows all of this stuff. And he's... Everything he's doing right now, this last week, is everything he's doing, he is declaring who he is. I am, and you're gonna, are you going to believe that I am? Over and over again he says, I am, and gets the people riled up. There's going to be a lot of people that are either going to believe him or reject him because of who he's saying he is. And this is very critical. You know, he is saying something that to the Jewish mind does not make sense. That this man on earth is claiming to be God. Now, the Jewish people in general, some of them have this idea of more than one God because the great statement is, I am the Lord your God. The Lord our God is one God, you know, and it is Elohim is one Yahweh. And Elohim is a plural word for God. So he says, the The God is the one God, or the gods is the one God. They don't understand that even though when they read that it it blows their mind that they're being taught the Trinity without knowing it because of the words in Hebrew that they have. And here he's saying, I am, and it says they did not, uh, you shall die in your sins if you don't believe that, and then they go, who are you? (laughs) He just told them, I am, you got to believe that I am. And then it says, then we go into this, you said, who I said I was from the beginning, and verse 27, and they understood not that he talked, spoke to them of the Father. Now, we've mentioned this a few times. Jesus referred to God as his Father. The Jewish mind did not look to God as a Father. They looked at him as the Almighty the one who is above everything, he created everything, he's the master, he's the great king, you can't get to know him. Their, their thoughts about God weren't too far removed from just about every religion. There's a God up there and hopefully we can do the right things and get him pleased. We'll offer the right sacrifices and he'll be pleased and we'll get to go, to, we'll get to go into his presence. But they never had an idea of a God who loved them. Even though the scriptures in the Old Testament are full of references of a God that loves them and has compassion on them and has pity on them and will take care of them, they never really saw God as a loving Father who wanted what's best for them. Many Christians don't have that picture of God. They just, they're worried. I was talking with somebody earlier this week who just had this picture that God is always out there wanting to punish them. Their life is miserable. They must be being punished for something. And it's like, well, did you do anything really that bad? No, I don't think so. Well, then God's not punishing you. you know, but we need to be careful because it's so easy, especially when bad things are happening in our life, to say, okay, God, you must really not like me. He loves us. And we need to always remember, he loves us. Now, that means that we need to step up and obey, and he's going to get into that whole thing when he talks about these people who obey him. And then verse 28, he says, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you shall know that I am, and I do nothing of myself, but as my Father has taught me, I speak these things. Now, this is something they don't really understand at this point. He goes, when you lift up the Son, Jesus was going to be lifted up on a cross. And at that time many were going to look, especially when he started speaking kind words from the cross. And it got dark in the middle of it all and then you had the earthquake and, and the dead rose again from and started walking around and all these things that happened in that period of time all of a sudden they recognized him. So now they're really not going to recognize him until Zechariah 13.6 when they look and said, who is this? You know, There's the Messiah. Where did you get those wounds? And Jesus' answer in Zechariah is, in the house of a friend. You know, he's going to have all those wounds, the ri- holes in the wrist, the feet, the, the, the beating. And he's going to say, where did you where'd you get all those injuries? And he's just going to say, in the house of a friend. Would we say something like that? <laughs> You know, after having taken a beating like that, Jesus said, Yeah, the house of my friend. And their eyes will be opened. For the first time their eyes will be opened, and they'll actually see this is our Messiah returning back to us. And he says, When I have been lifted up, you'll recognize that I am. Then he goes, I do nothing of myself but my as my father has taught me, and I speak these things. I wish that I could have that answer in my life. I do nothing except what I see and hear that from the Father. I get so busy I forget to listen most of the time to the Father. And Jesus is saying, I don't do anything unless the Father tells me to do it. And this is kind of an amazing thing because I've heard people say, well, everybody that got near Jesus was healed. No, that would not be a true statement. Jesus did only what the Father said. And Healed people when it was time to heal them. Didn't heal people. Uh, you know why did he not heal people? I don't know. One of the men was so that Peter and John would get him healed later on after Pentecost. But because you know, that man laid at the gate beautiful every 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 day and had been there for years, which meant that he was there when Jesus went by Gate Beautiful, and didn't get healed by Jesus. He gets healed by Peter and John later on. Why? So Peter and John could be the the tool? I don't know. (laughs) Who knows? But whatever reason God does what he does. Why does he heal one person and not another? I don't know. Why does he bless, super bless one person and not another? I don't know. Maybe it's for the ones who aren't to learn to trust him more. And one of the things I have learned over the years is sometimes it's harder to trust God when everything is going your way and you seem to be super blessed and and nothing's going wrong in your life, it's real easy to drift away from God. But when you're suffering, you have to focus on God constantly. Well, God, I need another meal. I need need another trip to the store. I need this, I need that. And we start focusing on God as our help. But it is real easy when everything seems to be going right to set our focus on ourselves and not the giver of the gifts. So why Jesus does it? Well I think a lot of times it is so that we will be focused on him and not on ourselves. And it is He that sent me is with me. The Father has not let left left me alone, for I do always those things that please Him or are agreeable to Him. Now this is very interesting because if you when Jesus says this statement No, the scribes and Pharisees are looking, you've broken a whole bunch of our laws. And Jesus could have answered them, no, I haven't broken a single one of the Father's laws. I probably have broken your laws, because I think he did that on purpose to break their laws. But he didn't break the Father's laws. And so he's telling them do this, and it says in verse 30, and as he spoke these words, many believed on him. At this time, many accept, decide to accept this is God. This is God. We're going to put our trust in him. This is what he was trying to do. Now, I don't know how many many was in the in the group. I don't know if it was many of the ones listening to him because there had to be a lot of people who weren't listening to him as well. And then Jesus said, If you continue in my word, then you are... Then are you my disciples indeed? And this is very important. This does go to the fact when people say, "You know, you people who believe, you can't lose your salvation. You just believe people can do what they want." No. If you're truly his disciples, you are going to obey him. He is Lord of your life, not just Savior. He must be Lord and Savior. Romans ten eight says that when you declare that he is Lord. If you confess with your mouth the Lord, you shall be saved. And this is important. Is he just somebody I believe died for my sins and so I can escape hell and go to heaven? Or is he going to be my master? And if he's not master, you don't really know him. And this is very important for us. Is he really Lord and master? And... Too many people, especially in America, do not make him Lord and Master. They just, well, uh, I got my fire insurance, I can do what I want now. He, he saved me. Alright, what did he save you from and what's he? what, what are you doing to be, show that you are saved? And this is what James says in his book. He goes, you say you have faith, good for you. Show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. And what is he saying? That if you're not walking with God, then you're going to, have a, you're going to be hard-pressed to, to prove that you are a Christian. If you are really walking with God, your very walk with God will show that you are a Christian. And I do believe that is a true statement. Uh, you know, is James saying you cannot be saved without a walk with God? No, he never said that. But he said there's no way you can prove that you really have a life-changing faith if you don't follow and walk. And this is very important. Jesus said, you must go out and follow my words and follow my word and be my disciples. And then he says, if you shall, and you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. This is very interesting. The know, you will understand the truth. And this is the great thing. When I read, when I talk to people and go, well, I just can't get into the Bible. I can't understand anything about it. I'm going, do you know Jesus? Do you really know him? Now, am I going to say you're going to know everything there is to know about the Bible? No, but it should start making some sense to you. One of the greatest things I hear when somebody gets saved is, well, you know, yesterday I couldn't understand a word in the Bible. Now, all of a sudden, I can't get enough of it. I don't understand all of it, but man, what I understand is, (laughs) is really powerful. You're starting to know the truth. And the truth will set you free. And this set you free means to set at liberty. You're not bound. You're not bound up by the rules. And this is a very interesting thing. We get to know Jesus. We're freed from all the rules and the laws because we know him and he has saved us but then we start being obedient because we become more like him and the rules are based in who he is and because we become more like him, we start being more obedient to the law. Not because we're trying to please him, not because we're bound up by the law, but because he is becoming real and alive in us and by doing so, I become more alive than I've ever been alive because I'm following after him. And this is why I tell people, Walking the Christian life is the easiest thing in the world to do if you let God do it. I surrender. I let him crucify my flesh and he lives in me. He makes me more like him. And then I start acting like him. Not because I'm trying to please anybody. Not because I'm trying to follow a bunch of rules. But because I am just being made like the one that I fall in love with. And he becomes more I become more and more like him and this is the beautiful thing we are indwelled by the Holy Spirit the Holy Spirit baptizes us and then changes us from the world into a spiritual being now it takes a while but it becomes more and more and we look at our life and see how it changes and how we don't react when people do things and how we we're, we're not as you know we want we want the word we see things we go no I don't want that. I don't want the world and we become more and more like him, not because I'm bound up by laws and rules, but because I'm getting total freedom from them. And I'm being made like him, and then all of a sudden I become one of the greatest followers of the rules. And this is the one thing, because I've talked to so many Christians over the years, and they're going, well, how are you doing? How's your spiritual walk? Well, I'm really trying to be a good Christian and for I don't know how many decades, it's been decades, I learned this a long time ago, I would tell them, quit trying. I go, what? I'm going, let God crucify your flesh and set you free and change you and you will start walking more like Him. You know, but it's life changing when you can learn to just surrender to Him and let Him do the changes. And people go, and when I say that statement, everybody go, well how do you surrender? And the answer is, you just do. You just surrender. You know, and my example is, if the police were outside and come out with your hands up, we could choose to come out with our hands up or say, come and get us. And they'd come and get us. And we'd lose. Or we could go out and surrender by just surrendering. How do we surrender to God? We just surrender. Say, God, I give up. I, don't, I can't do it. I'm going to let you take care of it. For I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. In the life that I now live, I live by the faith in the Son of God. Second Corinthians, uh, Galatians 2.20. Very powerful verse. I let Christ crucify me. Then he comes in, lives, and lives out of me. And then I start doing what the Father wants me to do. Not because I'm trying to, but because Christ is living out of me and through me doing what the Father says. Very powerful verse when we think about this. And very powerful way to change our life. Verse 33, they did not understand anything that Jesus said. And they answered, we are Abraham's seed and were never in bondage to any man. How say you that we shall be made free? Now this is kind of an interesting statement. The Jews sitting in the temple looking for a Messiah to set them free of Roman Empire uh, rule tell Jesus we have never been in bondage. They're in bondage as the, Jesus is speaking to them. Now Jesus is speaking about spiritual bondage. They're speaking about earthly bondage and they're in earthly bondage as well as spiritual bondage. They had been under Assyria. So it wasn't true that they had never been in bondage. Uh, Babylon had taken them captive. Okay. Uh, they, you go back further. The Egyptians had taken them captive. They're getting ready to go into Passover season, which was the celebration of the deliverance of God from their captivity. And they're telling him, we have never been in bondage. I, to me, this is one of the funniest statements in this whole section. We're Abraham's seed. We've never been in bondage. Uh, And you're telling us that that you you shall be made free. They're under bondage of the law 613 laws that they have to keep every second of every day to please God. So not only are they in physical bondage, they are in spiritual bondage, trying to keep all these rules. And then, if 613 rules weren't enough, the scribes and Pharisees have added dozens of rules on top of every one of the 613 rules. So, you, let's say it was only 10, they've got over 6,000 rules to obey. And they're saying, We're not under bondage. We can do whatever we want. We're at, we're at, we're at liberty. We can do what we want. As long as we, don't, as long as we obey, the, obey the over 6,000 rules that are on us, we're okay. We're not under bondage. And we can do what we want. Rome, Rome doesn't have anything to say over us. I just find this, I mean, I, I have a strange sense of humor, but I find this to be a very comical s- sentence when I read it. When you really think about how, how bizarre it is when they said it. And Jesus answered and said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Whosoever commits sin is the servant of sin, and the servant abides not in the house forever, but the son abides forever. If the son therefore shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. I know that you are Abraham's seed but I but you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. I speak that which I have seen which my father uh, seen with my father and you that which you have seen of your father. All right, so Jesus goes, you know, truly truly or amen amen I say unto you, whoever commits sin is a slave to sin. Now this statement is very true. When we commit sin we do get put into bondage to that sin. If you start using drugs or alcohol, eventually you you think you're in control of it and very soon it doesn't take you long to be addicted to it. And every sin has an addictive quality to it. Some of it is physical addiction like alcohol and drugs. Some of it is in in the soul, such as sex and everything, that you want more and more and it's not necessarily... A physical addiction, but a soulish addiction, which is just as bad. Uh, Lying, cheating, gluttony, it doesn't really matter. They all have an addictive quality, and we become slaves to that sin. And Jesus understood that. If you're not my disciple, you're not following me, I'm not living in you. You are a slave to the sin you commit. And we note that he uses sin, not sins, but sin all it takes is one sin to take you captive. And many people have fallen thinking, I can get by, it's only one little sin, I can manage it, no problem. And statement, I can't remember who said it, but sin will take you further than you wanted to go and to places you didn't want to go. Well, I can handle it, it's just a small thing. And then you find you're going to doing things that you never dreamed that you would ever do because of where sin takes you. And we need to be very careful about how we look at sin. We do not want to even play around with sin. You know, one of the questions I get frequently asked is, "Well, how close can I do go on this without going into sin?" Usually in relationships, to relations with the opposite sex. You know, can we can we hold hands? Can we hug? Can we kiss? We can we can we pet? Can we, you know, can we get undressed and lay together as long as we don't uh, actually commit the act? Uh, well. Why do you want to get as close as you can without, you know, because the problem is it'll keep going further and further. Wherever you try to draw that line, it'll go further. And we need to be very careful. Where do we draw that line? Purity. Keep it as far from the sin as possible before we try to go, well, I don't know how close I can get. Now, and believe me, I've heard that over my lifetime so many times. Well, how close can I, you know, and they don't usually say quite that way, but what can I do without committing the sin? How close to the line can I come, I, I want to itch up to the line but not cross it. Where's that line before I cross it? Uh, well, if you're inching up to the line, eventually you're going to cross it. Plain and simple. If you're playing along flirting with the line, you're going to cross it at some point. How close to a lie can I get before I've actually told a lie? You uh, how close can I, you know, and it's, it doesn't matter what the sin is, it's how close can I get before, how much light drugs can I use before I get addicted? Um, and it's very interesting because like at the prison, we have people that teach substance abuse classes and they're addicted to their cigarette smoking terribly. They're out smoking every 20 to 30 minutes and they're teaching classes on substance abuse. And it's very funny You know, in one sense, but it's very sad. They are totally addicted to a drug teaching people how not to be addicted to drugs. And it's like, okay, yes, that one's legal. I understand it's legal, but you are addicted. You you are addicted. You're addicted so bad that you have to get out every 20 to 30 minutes or less to get a cigarette. You are addicted. And we need to be very careful about that playing around the edges of sin becoming the servant of sin is so bad. Verse 35 says, "And the servant abides not in the house forever, but the son abides forever." What is he saying? If your family, it's your house. If your family, you get to stay in the house. If you're a servant, eventually another servant's going to take your place. You're going to die and you will have it, your your children won't be part of that family because you weren't part of that family if you do something wrong, really bad wrong, you're going to be kicked out of your position. He goes, if you're a servant, you don't abide forever in the house. Consequently, he's saying, you're not servants. You are the family. And then he goes again, and if the son shall set you, make you free, you shall be free indeed. So again, he's going, if. Understand the son thereof. It shall make you free. And again, this set at liberty. You're not bound under the rules. The servants have a bunch of rules they have to follow. The family basically gets to do what they want in the house. It's their house. Now, yeah, mom and dad may put some restrictions on them so they don't totally tear it up, but it's their house. They can do what they want in that house. The servant does what the servant does. If your job was to cook, you're in the kitchen cooking. You didn't, go into the, you didn't go into the family sitting room and sit down with the family and play cards. Your job was to be in the kitchen. If you're the servant serving the drinks, you didn't all of a sudden just sit down and go, yeah, why don't we just talk for a while? <laughs> no, you are a servant. You did your job. The family got to sit around. The family could go get drinks and serve them if they wanted and then sit down. But the servants do not get to do what they want. They get to do what they are told to do. And he says, this, and then he goes, I know you are Abraham's seed. I know that you were born a Jew. All right. He's admitting, I go, I know that you are of Abraham's seed, but you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. All right. You want to kill me because you don't understand who I am. You, you are of the lineage of Abraham but they're not of the spiritual lineage of Abraham. They're not wanting what Abraham wanted. And he goes, my word has no place in you. When you hear the truth, you reject it. And this is the great thing. Once we come into his family, we start hearing the word and the truth. We may not always like what we hear, but at least we're going, all right, God, you're speaking at me can't tell you how many times I'm driving down the street listening to somebody preach and they're going, they're preaching right at me and sometimes I don't like what they're saying. Uh, Because it is hitting home. It is hitting home to where I'm at. But it's like, okay God, I understand. And I have a choice at that time to either surrender to him or keep fighting. I'm getting better at surrendering. But every once in a while I'll still fight. (laughs) I'm human. And then he says... I speak that which I have seen with my father and you that which you have seen with your father. Now, he's getting really personal here. I have a father. I'm doing what I see him do. He tells me the truth. He tells me what to do, and I'm going to speak it. You are following your father. Now, he's just told them they're of Abraham's seed. They have said Abraham is our father, but they are not going to understand this then they said to him, in verse thirty-nine, "Abraham is our father." Jesus said unto them, "If you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me, a man that has told you the truth, which I have heard of God. This did not Abraham. You do the deeds of your father." I'm going to stop there, <laughs> halfway into that verse. All right, he goes. They go, "We're Abraham's seed. You know, where Abraham's our father." We don't know what you're talking about. But Abraham's our father, and Jesus gets point blank, to, point, point blank with him. If you were really Abraham's seed, you would listen to me. And it doesn't say it in this one. He goes, but Abraham longed to see my day. All right, it doesn't say it here, but you know, Abraham wanted to see me. Abraham wanted my what you are seeing. You're not, and you're rejecting me. Abraham would not have done this. It's a pretty bold statement he's making. And you seek to kill me, a man that has told you the truth which I have heard of God. This did not Abraham. When Abraham heard the truth, he did not seek to get rid of it. He embraced it. And he goes, you do the deeds of your father. And we're going to stop there because it's 7.30. (laughs) Terrible place to stop. Lord, we ask you to bless this evening. Give us an opportunity to come back and seek you and all that you do help us to see you in all that we do and to reach out and follow you and obey you in all that we do and we thank you in jesus name amen listening friend do you know where you'll go after you die without the gift of jesus it will be an eternity in hell without god good works will not get you there for by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves it is a gift of god not of works lest any man should boast to spend eternity with god we must recognize that we are sinners in need of christ for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. To be assured eternal life, we simply talk to God, admit you are a sinner, and ask him for his free gift. You must mean the words to, get the, to be answered. Jesus is waiting to hear your request. If you have asked him for eternal life, he has come into you and he will change you. Start reading the book of Ephesians and see what God says about your new life. After you understand the book of Ephesians, you can start reading the Gospel of John. Next, find a good Bible teaching church. Tell the pastor about your decision for God and be taught. If you contact us, we will send you a new believer booklet free of charge. Congratulations and grow in Christ. You can contact us by email at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or by snail mail at P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona, 86431. We are happy to help with your new life in Christ or even answering Bible questions. Again, congratulations on your decision for Christ.